Welcome to Latinos Who Tech. My name is Hugo Castellanos. I'm an engineer and I work in Silicon Valley. This episode of Latinos Who Tech is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the world's premium platform for audiobooks with over 150,000 titles. If you're like me, you're passionate about learning new things, but finding the time to read may be difficult. Audiobooks are a great alternative. You can get a free 30-day trial plus a free audiobook by going to audibletrial.com slash latinos. Go and support them since they support us. Thank you. Hello, folks. Welcome to Latinos Who Tech. Uh, we're going to have a conversation with uh, my favorite Cuban engineer, Emily Ann Vargas. Hello. Emily. Hi. Sorry. I am technologically inept. <laughs> no worries. No worries. It's not, it's not like you're a PhD student or anything, right? <laughs> no. I mean, granted, I've had, I've had the same computer for more than five years, and I still don't know how to use it half the time. <laughs> no worries. But I'm sure yeah. that your manufacturing skills are top-notch. And, um, oh, sure. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. <laughs> yeah, no, because yeah. I, I have this idea of you. I see you as the... The Latina Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, <laughs> so you can teach us everything about ceramics and manufacturing. And all mm, that. I don't know about everything, but I'll do my, <laughs> I'll well, do my best to go into the unknown area. More than I know. More than I know. Si, si, si. So uh, I'm going to just uh, pin a post so people okay. know who you are. Emilian awesome. Vargas. Juana, está aquí. Juana. Que hola, Cere. Que hola. Dale. Ya tú sabes. Ya, yeah, ya. Yeah. Cuando estamos en Cuba, no hacemos esto como así. <laughs> Would you just, like, uh, like freak people out? Like, uh, let's just do it, like, uh, in, in Spanish, but, like, cu like really Cuban Spanish, like... Tenemos que hablar bien rápido para que tú sepas, chicos. Cuando estamos en Cuba, no hacemos esto como así, vamos a jugar dominó. Entonces, cuando agarras el late, el late, tú lo que agarras, sí, sí. Yeah, and then at some point it's just gonna sound, start sounding like a Dominican accent. It's like, oh yeah, get a little bit. <laughs> yeah, like they'll blend together, right? Like something mm -hmm. with the Caribbean. Yeah, except um, if I'm not mistaken, the Puerto Ricanos they instead of the R's they use L's, and mm -hmm. then Cubans just re uh, remove the S's and the T's. And yeah, and Dominicans is like all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah. they do have they do have some good mofongo, you know. So oh, they do. They it do. does. It does help. What what they lack in the in letters, they make up in their mofongo. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah. So uh, so, what's your your current title? What do you call yourself? Is it like materials PhD student? Like what what do you what do you use? Uh, so essentially, yeah, um, because I'm not a there are different universities operate um, differently. For instance, there is this exam that you typically take in your first year um, that basically determines whether or not you can stay in the program. No pressure, mm -hmm. right? No pressure uh, at all. So some, some universities call you a PhD candidate immediately afterwards. Um, at the University of Southern California, USC, they um, call you a candidate after you've passed your qualifying exam, which is about it basically is during your halfway point in your PhD and mm. basically says you're in the right direction and aren't just wasting your time gotcha. <laughs> the past two, three years, however long uh, you're in the program then. Got it. So would mm -hmm. you say PhD student in material science or material? Material science and engineering. Uh, I'm graduating with my master's in spring with material science. I was honestly, 
iffy about whether I wanted to do materials engineering and material science, but I figured I'll, I'll kill two birds with one stone since the material science requirements are the core courses that they use for the PhD. So all I had to do is a couple more electives and woo, I'm a master. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then so. we can call you Master Vargas. Yeah, Master Vargas and hopefully Doctora Vargas in less than three years. It's, <laughs> it's coming. crossing my fingers. It's, it's in the pipeline, it's coming. Yeah, hopefully. That's awesome. Hopefully so, yeah. yeah. Cross so that bridge and how, I get there. <laughs> so, how are you? How are things? Things are, I'm, I'm living the dream, right? Whether the dream is a nightmare or not, that's a different story. I'm just kidding. Uh, it's, honestly, it's honestly been really good. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have a really good support system out here in LA. Um, and honestly, those people have been really helping me out in the respect of you know, those difficult obstacles and uh, reaching those bumps in the, uh, you know, those walls and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. overall, I'm, I've been really enjoying the process. Um, it's been a lot of uh, removing the Band-Aid kind of stuff. <laughs> and especially last year, um, there was a lot of things that, you know, going in from changing majors and whatnot, that was just, I think in my first podcast with you, I said, I knew it's going to be difficult. Oh, my gosh, it was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was something and, else. And, and, and that's the thing. And that's why I, I was uh, so looking forward to, to chatting with you, because uh, I caught you like the week you moved to L.A., yeah. Uh, something like that. So <laughs> Right before I went to Nila, too. <laughs> right before Nila. So, like, again, you know, no pressure at all, you know. Right. Like, it's not good. It's not like your schedule is full or anything. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's sad enough that I have to basically schedule my friends in where we could chat every now and then. It's so sad. I'm just like, I'm sorry. I'm so Yeah. Busy. So I'm actually, um, since we're getting personal, I'm actually thinking of starting a, a shared calendar with my girlfriend. Uh -huh. Just so we can schedule things like a date night or trips or oh, wow. stuff like that. So yeah, I'm, we're at that level. <laughs> wow, that's, that's that's insane. I yeah. I, I hope at, at some point. Well, my my best friends and I from high school because uh, one is in med school. She, she and I are basically like, okay, we have a 30 minute block here that we could talk on the phone. Other than that, it's like, well, it's nice knowing you. <laughs> mm -hmm. We'll talk maybe mm -hmm. sometime in the near future, but we'll have to schedule at least a year in advance. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. And then some well. people, you know, when, when you are the, when you get to that Neil deGrasse Tyson level mm -hmm. of fame and you're doing book tours and all your things, right? Uh, you're going to tell me, yeah, have your people talk to my people and we'll schedule <laughs> I hope not. I want to remain personable and, you know, be able to give my phone number, not some fake number and, you know, have people like a overall pipeline of people you have to get through before you actually get anything to me. And by that point, it's almost uh, there's probably some telephone being played where the message is somehow warped and then it ends up being like, yeah, this creepy person wanted to say wanted to, like, get your phone number and information to send you something. It sounded kind of a little well yeah. wonky. We're gonna we're gonna avoid responding and basically ghost them. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can I can give you access to my calendar. Just uh, put in the last four digits of pi and uh, it'll go right in. So. Hello, <laughs> 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 muchacha. Oh my gosh. Pero, pero no. I remember when we spoke. Uh, you know, we did a. It was the first podcast episode we did in English. Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, I was still going through this phase of should I, because I want to make Conexiones podcast, but should I make it in English? Should I make it in Spanglish? Should I do like one in English, one in Spanish? And and then I decided to, you know what? I'm going to have Latinos who talk English right. only for mm -hmm. my second gen folks and for 
anybody that's curious about um, our world, what we do. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of the folks here in Latinos with Tech, they haven't heard uh, your story. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell me, you share with us, you know, your story, how you got to Southern California. How does the, the girl from Miami get to LA? Uh, that'd be awesome. Sure. So like the beginning of time or <laughs> after the Big Bang, if you will. OK, yeah, you know, <laughs> a long ago when the dinosaurs got hit by a meteor, <laughs> um, you know, there was this funny thing that I saw that we really don't know if dinosaurs had hair or not, um, <laughs> because mm. the hair would have been burnt out. I said, hmm, it would be funny. To or see. feathers for the, exactly. for the feathers. We don't know. Exactly. So imagine seeing a dinosaur with just really long hippie hair. That would be pretty cool, I think. That'd be amazing. Um, like, I see, like, a, a dinosaur with, like, a mullet or something like that. Like a, Business in the front, party in the back. <laughs> yeah, till the, till the meteor hits. Mm. Yeah. Mm, no more sa fiestecita. Sagola sa fiestecita. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I guess I could start off with... Uh, Born and raised in northern Cuba, also known as Miami. And uh, <laughs> my parents are originally from Cuba. Um, and they immigrated sometime in the 60s, right when the Castro regime came to power. And they immigrated actually through the Freedom Tower in Miami, which is essentially the Ellis Island of the South. And so they came through Miami, and then m my dad moved to the Bronx, New York, in the 70s, so you could already mm. imagine how that was. Um, I think some people have probably heard of the movie Fort Apache. Uh, yeah, so he went through that. <laughs> he's, he, oh. Every now and then he's like, I've seen things. Um, oh. <laughs> but it's, it's funny. He's like a burnt marshmallow. He has a tough exterior, but he's really sweet on the inside. Um, my mom grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, um, I know there's some Jersey folks probably on uh, and New York folks on this um, live live video. Yeah, yeah. And so they yeah, they met in New York um, and then they conceived me sometime uh, 12 years later after mar uh, getting married. And um, yeah, so I grew up in Miami. I always had an interest in inventando things and particularly my dad is a carpenter remodels uh, homes by trade. He's just basically can do everything from mm -hmm. remodeling homes to fixing cars. I think the time you were there, he was changing the oil or something in my yes. car. Yes, uh -huh. uh, he, and, and we were recording and he was out there doing his thing. Right, and, right, then, right. Uh, and then typical Papa Latino is yeah. like, uh, yeah, yeah, kids, finish your thing. And then I'll give uh, Emily, I'll give your friend a ride back to his place. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, no, it's a senor, you can call an Uber. Don't worry. No, 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 no. I'll give you a ride. Like, uh, sorry, right, right, Latino. Right. Like, uh, they, yeah. they, they, they got to be like, in control. Don't right? say no. So you met my dad. You know how you, he looks. I, I know. He's an he looks, amazing guy. He looks guy. tough, amazing so you don't want to say no to him. We, we um, went out for brunch, remember, with the right, right, right. And, Yeah, yeah. That was yeah, fun. yeah, yeah. Oh, that place is so good. Um, I, I went, actually, when my parents, um, or rather, when my dad came in April, for a little bit, he, we actually went all the way out there. It's on a, what is it, Route 66? Mm -hmm. And um, we went out, he's like, we got to go back to that place. It was so good. And yeah, it was it was awesome going back there. But yeah, um, but yeah it was, uh, my parents actually came in July and needless to say, I was helping my dad change the rotors in my car, put in ceramic carbon fiber brakes, which I'll talk about later, mm, and, yes, among other please. things. So uh, yeah, having that exposure from, you know, invent, like, doing from maintenance to um, basically making things that you don't have accessible to yourself. Um, I really got that exposure from both my parents. 
Um, particularly, I was the tomboy growing up. I would wear camouflage cargo pants uh, <laughs> and would always be w- with working with uh, my dad in the garage. Um, needless to say, I, I became very good at holding a flashlight. But <laughs> for <laughs> for other things, he did teach me uh, quite a few uh, things, such as soldering to you know using power tools and things like that, um, which was really nice to have that exposure and. Whenever, whenever I wanted a toy or something like that, um, we, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. And so mm. my pena always to be like, mom, dad, I want the thing in the magazine that I got in the mail. So I'd be mm. like, hmm, how can I make this? And so I would just think about it for a little bit. And before I know it, I'm grabbing things from my closet or from the, from the recycle, cutting things and just would be the little tonita and the esquinita just working mm-hmm. on something and my parents would always be like, Donita, what are you up to? I'm like, nothing, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> and before you know it, they see, they see us, uh, they see me with all these things. They're like, when did you get that? I was like, I made it. I made um, it, right, right. Like, yeah, and, yeah, I, yeah. And, and I love that uh, adaptability, that whole inventando thing that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, we'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love that uh, as part of the um, that uh, immigrant mentality we have, right? right? That uh, right, right, right. I don't need to have the latest and fanciest uh, MacBook Pro to get my homework done or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I have my five-year-old computer and it works just fine. Like uh, right. So I, yeah. I I love that. Love yeah. that. So so can you can you um remind us why? I mean, because you you went to Florida State, you got mm-hmm. your degree in industrial Gunnels. engineering. <laughs> Gonals, Gonals, always, you know, the yeah. chomp chomp and workshop. Yep. Yep, yep, workshop. And that's mm-hmm. for the people in the live, because uh, the people in the podcast are gonna be wondering what the hell are these guys talking about? The like we're like doing the chomp. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, and then so you got your degree, and you got this. Uh, plethora of internships under your belt yeah that, uh, that was interesting i i one day i look i asked myself i'm like wait how many times did i move over the over the course of four years and how many different experiences did i have and it, it was absolutely amazing i mean i got a majority of these experiences if not all of them society of hispanic professional engineership which i got that exposure at university in tallahassee Florida. And so mm-hmm. I was really grateful for that and getting that exposure from beyond where I grew up in Miami, um, basically seeing the United States. I had never gone out and lived somewhere else. So having that opportunity was just really eye opening that, wow, there's so many different things out there. Um, mm-hmm. I experienced snow for the first time. And that was that was something else. <laughs> I'm like, what are yeah. these white particles falling from the sky? Ah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, we don't have that in Cuba. Especially not North Cuba. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, what is it? You see people wearing ski gear when it turns 65. Um, they're like, oh, snowstorm. Ooh. And it's yeah. just, it literally is like a palm tree falls or like one of the leaves falls. Like, ah, too much wind. <laughs> so if, when did you know you wanted to, I guess it's two questions, but uh, we can combine them. Uh, when did you know you wanted to get your PhD? Okay. And uh, when do you know USC is uh, my school? That's where I want to go. Okay. okay. Yeah. So um, going back to how I grew up, um, since I had that exposure with working with my dad and stuff, I always go with him to home 
Home Depot. And naturally, while he was talking to one of the employees, I would always be in the showcase areas, just checking out all the different things. Mm. I'm like, why is this? Why is this like this? And I would, I'd be like, Papi, this is not real Madera. Like, what the heck is this stuff? And he explained to me what particle board was. And that was, I think, the first time I got an exposure to composite materials. Um, because particle board, as most people know, is, um, you know, it's not real wood. It's basically compressed sawdust with uh, resin to make it look, uh, to have the capabilities of wood. But, you know, it's a lot less expensive. It's lightweight. Um, and, you know, IKEA furniture is one of the, the largest um, areas where you see particle board. And that hopefully the stuff lasts five years or before <laughs> before you have a move. Because once you have the move, the stuff is probably gone. Um, right. <laughs> So having that exposure, um, and then as I, I I had always been making things and stuff in high school, I was involved in the um, entrepreneurship academy mm-hmm. at my um, it was a strand there, and then I actually made my own little business like from making something that I thought was pretty cool. Nice. Um, but I I first thought I wanted to go into law, and then I wanted to go into business of some sort of accounting. But I realized I as I uh, I'll talk about with my degree at FSU, I liked it, but I didn't love it. And mm. so the moving forward to college, um, I didn't know what engineering was. I think I one day Googled right before uh, while applying to colleges at, at high school. I looked up, okay, what's like inventando mixed with math? Because I really loved math. I was a, a mathlete <laughs> in high school. I compete in math competitions in the summer for fun. So I was like, woo. Of, uh, <laughs> of course you were a mathlete, of yeah, course. Yeah. It was what I enjoyed. We, we should have gotten like Letterman jackets too. That's how intense we were. Wow. Uh, so I had that exposure there and I looked up one day, those literally those two words, inventing and uh, math and engineering came up. So I said, oh, I might as well look into this. And I, I saw that it was uh, very intensive in terms of the program and stuff like that program, um, like the overall coursework and whatnot. And mm-hmm. I said, I want to do this. I don't want to do anything medical related because I don't want to deal with blood or potentially killing somebody. <laughs> so this is something where I, I know I could be able to challenge myself. And of course, at Florida State, industrial engineering, for those who don't know, is basically a combination of looking at the quality control processes, um, improvements uh, in in relation to Six Sigma, so finding ways to make things better. Um, so you have, basically you interact with all the other engineers, uh, engineering disciplines, but you take what they're working on, whether it be a product or a service, and make it mm-hmm. better, um, whether it be yeah. faster, stronger, um, quicker, and things like that. So I, I realized, again, I liked it, and through my internship experiences, I tried different areas of industrial engineering, um, which was kind of nice having that exposure before graduating um, because I said, oh, nope, don't want to do sales engineering. Nope, don't want to do quality control. Nope, don't want to do this mm-hmm. or that. But then sometime in my mid-sophomore, junior, uh, once I finished my sophomore year and going to my junior year, I had an identity crisis. I was like, what? I don't like industrial engineering. What am I supposed to do now? I'm already in my right. third year. I'm not going to switch majors that I 
absolutely, whenever I talked about my experiences in industrial engineering, it was very, yeah, just uh, pretty monotone. But um, it mm -hmm. didn't occur to me. I had been doing research for, uh, for about two years at the time at the High Performance Materials Institute in Tallahassee, where I was working mm -hmm. on the manufacturing processes of materials. And I know we talked about carbon nanotubes and bucky paper in our yes, last bucky um, paper. podcast. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So I won't, I won't talk too much about that other than it's a very thin material um, that can be used in lightweighting applications and it's very, very strong um, and has all these other properties. And so I worked with making that stuff. And um, one day somebody pointed out to me, when you talk about your research, it's like your eyes spark mm -hmm. uh, and you should look into getting an opportunity with something and that try it out and see if you like it. So fortunately, um, in a couple of my internships, I was able to get that exposure and I realized, wow, I really wanted to get got, want to get into this, and but the question was, will I be able to get that exposure and understanding of materials and how they work through industry, or will advanced degrees be a better option to start mm -hmm. before going into whether it be an industry or other related work for, workforce opportunities? Um, not to mention, I was always very curious. Uh, curiosity killed the cat a lot when I was younger. Uh, <laughs> and I always, there was this area of wanting to understand the unknown because there's a lot of things that aren't on Google that are still being discovered to this day. You see all of these Nobel laureates coming up with all these new ideas and theories. Um, what is it? The gravitational waves being uh, an example of one of the most recent discoveries um, and or rather the imaging. And so all of these unknown areas really fascinated me and I wanted to be a part of that. And in industry, you do have uh, pros and cons to just uh, in general, you have um, advantages, disadvantages in industry versus academia versus other mm -hmm. routes. Um, with academia, you have a little bit of more of a breadth and uh, capability of doing whatever you want. Um, of course, it has to align where the where you got the funding um, and what the project proposals were and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But you do have some limitations in industry where it has to be some form of value proposition to the company um, in relation to a program or service. So seeing that as an opportunity to basically basically be all, I could do whatever I want. So anything mm -hmm. that I haven't had exposure with or something that I did have exposure with, I could expand on that. I don't really have any limitations there. Right. So was, you, you don't have a business unit uh, that you have to, uh, you know, check in with them and, okay, what are the products that this is going to go into mm -hmm. and uh, uh, basically justify your existence as a, <laughs> as a right, researcher right. every six months. Uh, exactly. You know, like, like, granted, there's things like grant writing that mm -hmm. uh, you're asking for money as an academic, as a researcher, but, but uh, you don't have to apply for the grant. Right. Like uh, right. you get some things from the school already. And uh, right, right, right. yeah, so no, yeah. That's, that's awesome. I'm happy you found yeah. your niche in, in, in research. I'm happy you found it. Yeah. And there's advantages again in industry. There are grants that you could apply to for, for instance, the National Science Foundation. You could apply for uh, grants that in collaboration with an institution. Um, but you still, regardless in both areas, you do have to have a pitch of some sort of like, why are you going to deviate this way? Um, and be able to prove it, whether to be to the executives approving the budget or to the NSF program officers that are saying whether or not you could move forward with this project. Um, 
So there's a lot of pros and cons. Um, you can find a lot of it on the internet or talking to indiv other individuals in academia, professed faculty members and stuff like that. Um, so I saw that opportunity there and then not so much, I just didn't understand how materials worked. I understood things like, oh yeah, if you pull it, you could see the strength of it or um, you could test for conductivity, but I didn't understand why materials did, had the certain properties that they do. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, so then there was the question of, why do the PhD over just a master's? And I think that goes, some master's can be just course related and others can be both course and having a mini thesis. But I find that with the limitations of two, three years, how much in depth can you really get into an area of interest for, uh, for instance, in an area of the unknown? Um, mm. PhDs are average four and a half, five years. Hopefully, I'm not there. I'm not here long, longer than that. <laughs> um, I know some people that it just depends on the research you're doing and if the stars align. But right. yeah, in general, that's why uh, I wanted to do PhD and particularly materials. Um, that exposure from growing up and then um, at FSU having that overall gap of knowledge that I wanted to fill. And uh, you asked me why I chose USC in particular. Yeah, yeah. Well, why USC? I mean, besides mm -hmm. the perfect weather and. Uh, all the well, fun stuff. It's like Seattle weather today. It's been raining and cold, which I kind of like because I really like Seattle. Um, but the sun, the sun is very nice. Uh, I applied to graduate schools twice in uh, different years. So I applied in the 2016 year to matriculate in fall 2017, and mm -hmm. then I also applied in fall 2018. I. Uh, in 2017, I decided to take a gap year because I was really burnt out from undergrad mm -hmm. and not to mention that identity crisis that I was talking about. Um, I didn't have enough exposure with materials-based applications and um, mm -hmm. knowledge. And so I felt that I really needed to get that exposure to confirm that I want to spend five years right. doing something like this. And not to mention, I, I got into schools, which I was absolutely fortunate enough to, to be able to do because... I was so scared. I'm like an industrial engineer applying to mechanical engineering and material science engineering mm -hmm. programs without that previous background. It was massive imposter syndrome, massive, like, I don't, how am I going to convince these people to, when I've never taken a real thermodynamics class? Yeah, yeah um, like to, uh, imposter syndrome, what's that? We don't talk about the, the, that yeah, in this podcast. You know, what? What's that? Huh? Like, you're an engineer, <laughs> figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> oh, exactly. And so that was, uh, I decided to take a year off, get my, get my mind clear a bit. And so I worked in, in materials-based roles, and that just reaffirmed my decision to want to go into to academia versus uh, industry route. And so the second time I applied, I applied to less, uh, less amount of schools. Uh, first time I applied to, I think, nine. Um, this time I applied to four. And I chose the universities I applied to based off of the research and the connections I made with advisors. Most, most of the, um, all of the universities, actually, I had a connection at Bo uh, um, my previous internship, Boeing, whom connected me in the summer. Um, and I had a discussion with them, which was really nice. So I got that a feel of whether or not it's going to be a right fit for me if I were to join their lab. And so reason why I chose USC, location was really important. I wanted to be mm -hmm. happy. Um, and there's another component. I wanted an international airport nearby because flights are just expensive nowadays, especially during holidays and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted that there. I also wanted to be able to have, um, you know, opportunities to 
ex go outside of where the university is and explore different opportunities, adventures, and go out of my comfort zone in things mm -hmm. I've never tried before. And so the, the locations I chose uh, for those gra uh, graduate schools had all of this and then some. And so what ultimately met, uh, led me to USC was my, my lab. Uh, I work at the MC Gill Composite Center at the University of Southern California, and my advisor is named Dr. Steve Nutt, uh, and you heard that right, <laughs> N-U-T-T, -N Nutt. I'm in the Nutt Lab. We're a bunch of nuts, and of nuts. I, I absolutely love him. He is just I, out of this world. Um, his personality alone won me over the first time I talked to him on the phone. He even called me multiple times uh, before my application was submitted to ask me, do you need help with anything on the application and stuff like wow. that? I just that, thought that, that was amazing. That's amazing. That, that, like he really wants you in the team, right? Like he wants yeah. to, he sees the talent on you and he probably yeah. says a little bit of uh, himself in you, you know, the way that he was as a exactly. PhD student. So that's, uh, that's awesome. Because like that, that PhD uh, advisor and that PhD student relationship is so important because mm -hmm. they, they're your, your boss, your mentor, your advocate, uh, your advocate, your sponsor, your, your friend to some extent. Uh, so it's like, it's very important. You know? it's, uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I'm so happy he, you found the fit. Yeah, he's been great. A lot of people, so it depends on the university. I entered USC already knowing I wanted to work with him. Um, some universities do a speed dating kind of thing where you switch lab, uh, labs every three months or so for the first year, and then you make a decision based off that. Um, and sometimes sometimes it's a good fit with your advisor if you pick them. So I've known people that have switched advisors halfway into their PhD because it wasn't a good mm. fit. Um, it's There is a risk. Um, especially if your university has only, you're only interested in one faculty member there. Um, so then there's the question of, do I switch universities or do I find someone and kind of force myself to want to work with them? There are different yeah. things that happen in a PhD program that nobody really talks about. Yeah, um, I had a professor at, uh, uh, back, back home in, in, in Florida. Uh, that's funny because I'm in Latino Sutec. So mm -hmm. like I'm in my more like gringo side of things. So like home is Florida. <laughs> in a way, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I lived there for 20 years, right? So, exactly. Uh, you know, like for some people like us, like asking, "Hey, where are you from?" That can be a bit of a loaded question sometimes. Like, uh, where my parents are from, where I was born, <laughs> where I grew up, which passports do I have? <laughs> like, or what's uh, your background? <laughs> what's your background? Yeah, that's the that's the innocent one. What's your background? Uh, yeah. <laughs> But uh, I had a professor back uh, back home that he actually, uh, he he didn't have a, he was ABD. He was a all but dissertation. And uh, and I noticed that, hey, like he actually had it in his uh, resume. So I was wondering like, hey, could, I was wondering why did you never like finish your PhD? And his advisor actually died uh, oh, wow. while he was uh, going through the his PhD program. So... Wow. Yeah, those things happen, right? Absolutely, so, life happens. Yeah. And you know, there's there's ways, sometimes there there is an option to navigate around it uh, despite it happening, but then there's others where it's just a roadblock. And so how do you how do you go, get through that? Do you do you take the situation and try to find a solution or do you accept it at face value kind of move forward? Um, and yeah. it sounds like in that case you kind of just accepted it and you know moved forward yeah so. yeah he actually he got a he got a job as a, as an instructor at the local community college mm -hmm. and uh and that was his career path you know he mm -hmm. loved the teaching aspect more than the research aspect so uh yeah yeah he's the, he's still teaching at, at valencia in, in mm -hmm. Orlando, so. yeah 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 
Yeah, yeah I know about Valencia. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it. Uh, I forgot what we were talking about. <laughs> so, you got to your PhD, you okay, took okay. the program, you're in. Okay, so, okay. yeah. So, you've been, how long have you been in your PhD? Um, this is my, now I'm finishing, wow, oh my gosh, it's year two, I'm finishing my uh, first semester in year two. Gotcha. So, what do you wish you had known uh, back in... Last year first, when I talked like to you for the first time? Yes. Yes. So like oh my a first gosh. month of year one. What do you wish you had known? Oh, oh gosh. So many things. Um, one, I mean, it's kind of, I think, known but also unknown. You're not alone. There are people that look like you. Maybe you just have to f- kind of find them a little uh or rather put a larger research to find them. But there are people that exist uh, are similar to you, you know, Hispanic, first generation, um, that are in STEM-related fields. It's hard to find them, but once you do, you find that there's more of them, and then you kind of just uh, congregate them all together and make like a giant a giant circle where you just rant about, you know, advisors to <laughs> a little bit of everything. Um, so the I, I wish I would have started that earlier my first semester. It wasn't until my second semester I think I started um, reaching out more for help and trying to find these people. And some of them even found me, which was kind of um, interesting because it was at different events and stuff like that, stuff like that where they're all, hey, wait, you're that too? Wait, no way, and, and found that connection. So I wish I would have done that earlier. Um, I was very alone uh, during when I first moved to LA because I didn't know anybody other than you know the ship familia, but they're all over LA versus not at USC. And so then trying to build that uh, overall community was tough. And so I wish I would have tried a little more um, to go to different events and stuff like that. I was just so overwhelmed with my coursework. Mm-hmm. I said, I don't have time to go to this diversity event um, for the dinner or whatever stuff like that. I need to focus on getting through my classes. Um, it was a big knowledge gap for me from industrial engineering to material science. So, um, And then I didn't take, there is an option of taking undergraduate courses um, as a graduate student before taking the graduate courses. But I didn't want to do that because I said, oh, it's going to take more time. Um, so I said, you know what, let me go in and just hope for the best. Just pray. Just pray to all the gods. Pray to, <laughs> pray yeah, to the Shango, Watala, do the yeah, Santeria yeah. thing as well. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, light up my little velita. <laughs> you, oh, my gosh. Would that be, would that be uh, like, offensive to people? Like, if you're, you're in your... Uh, I did not laugh and you heard a little like oh, atala, altar, like right next to them. <laughs> le perfume, le wrong, like, I don't uh, know, I'm, to be I'm, honest. I'm kidding, I'm, I'm kidding, right? But uh, like... Uh, <laughs> I don't think anybody would care, honestly. Half the time... Like uh, Santero time, PhD. Yeah. <laughs> I don't practice Santeria. <laughs> like um, I do, I do. Oh, yeah, I would, I, I've told Chango. people multiple times about the, yeah, in Miami on four-way intersections, you see paper, uh, brown paper bags with uh, feathers everywhere. And I'm like, yeah, that's uh, chicken that the Santeros sacrificed um, during their rituals and stuff. And they say, what? And I said, yeah, that's that's pretty normal. And, and where Santeria has originated from Cuba. Um, and so it, it was so common. They, I didn't think of it as being something not not really known and weird. It's the same thing with yeah. the side besito or, you know, saying um you know, like Dale and stuff like that. That's not that's not a thing in other places. Or speaking no, Spanglish. No, definitely. And and I think that that's why it's um it's a bit of a double culture shock, you know, right. because uh um you know like growing up in South Florida that we're used to okay, we're part of this uh, Hispanic, Latino, Latina 
uh, or Latinx, whatever you want to call it, community. Right. And then we go into, oh, yeah, I got an internship at Boeing or mm -hmm. Intel or Microsoft. Right. And then you go to the West Coast or the middle of the country, and yeah. it's like, uh, wait, where's, where are the Latinos at? The <laughs> it's like... I can't find them. Yeah, that's what that was my experience. I I moved to to Portland uh, to work for 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 these guys uh, for mm -hmm. Intel for like uh, uh, for nine months as a co-op, and I remember that uh, I think I didn't speak Spanish for the first three weeks with anybody. Wow! Because uh, I just didn't find anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's crazy. So, so it's a, it's, a, it's a double culture shock because you have the culture right. shock in the at the office, and then you also have that community culture shock. It's like uh, you are, the thing I miss about Florida, man, is, is just the the sheer amount of, like, Latino bakeries around. Oh, like, you my know, gosh, you, can, yes. you can get, like, your cafecito, oh, you can get gosh. your croqueta, you can get, like, your, and, and it's not only the food or the coffees, it's the community aspect, you know, that the, the sense that, uh, you know, it's like, it's missing, you know, uh, so it's, right. uh, yeah, I hear you. I hear no, you. it's it's that. Um, yeah, so then trying to find that community was tough. So I, sh I wish I would have done that more. Um, also, a big thing, I find it so commendable for people that are working in industry and also doing part-time schooling because I just took one year off, and I forgot how to be a student. I absolutely forgot how to study. <laughs> I forgot everything. And so going into um, school, I was all, oh, I mean, I, I, I made it through undergrad. I, I didn't know how to study and stuff like that. I failed my first exam <laughs> in, wow. in grad school. It was just a complete eye-opener. I said, wow, I really don't know how to study anymore. Or rather, you know, the things evolve. Um, and the type of learning methods that you used in previous uh, years may not be the same way um, that can be applied that work for you. And... So that was, uh, I think, the biggest piece of advice is before starting graduate school to make sure you find, um, try out different ways and methods that work for you um, in terms of studying, retaining information, learning um, before you enter the program. So that, I think that was a big obstacle for me, uh, trying mm -hmm. to figure that out. I tried everything. I tried from uh, reading the books, annotating them, to watching uh, videos on YouTube, to um, trying to find... Uh, making index cards and everything and just it was really hard for me to figure out what worked best um, yeah. so, so what system do you build what what worked for you in the end what worked for me was mostly trying to find somebody that already knew <laughs> how to okay. what the stuff and um, particularly I have a couple of really good friends that know how to bring it down to layman terms um, because a mm. lot of faculty members they'll say things like oh obviously it's this you should have learned it in undergrad and here I'm all like just twiddling my thumbs yeah I didn't learn that um, so I, I reached out to a lot of upperclassmen and that's the biggest thing I did learn my first year that to reach out to people who've already endured it um, they know better than anybody else how to get out alive from these courses because they've had the same experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and so getting them uh, to explain it in different ways, how they understood it, um, definitely helped me out. And then also what I used to do a lot that I forgot sometime in undergrad and revisited was trying to find a way to remember things in a silly form of fashion. Oh, like so, mnemonics or yeah, yeah, yeah. So making instance, songs about them or yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I remember 
I, for instance, while learning the bones in seventh grade or something, I would make a song like you drive, uh, you drive your car with your carpools, you step on tar with your tarsals, you shake to Elvis with your pelvis. <laughs> so doing things like that definitely helped me out um, to re- remember things and to I would even find ways of with mnemonics to try to somehow input what it actually what the thing I'm trying to learn is. And the mnemonics, so I'll make songs with talking about what the actual application or what definition definition of the word is. Um, right. So that definitely helped out a lot. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize that, you know, as I mentioned before, life happens um, during your graduate degree and just in general. Um, so there are services at, on campuses that you may not be aware of. For instance, uh, legal services, um, if you're having any situations mm-hmm. with um, – for instance, if you're international and you have any visa issues to any landlord property situations or um, everything, there are free consultation services at a lot of universities. Um, another thing is mental health services. Mm. Most people don't realize that a lot of these are complementary to students, especially if you're provided insurance with your program. There's a really big area that you could tap into. Um, and they have counseling groups, and um, they actually have separate organization specifically for graduate students because how you experience school as an undergrad versus a graduate student is vastly different. You feel you're not you're not the same young self as you are in undergrad, but at the same time you're not able to turn off your brain after the the nine to five. You're constantly always working, constantly learning something and doing other things. And that was something that I forgot about school, that you don't turn your brain off. Uh, right. in industry in industry is a little different. I could sort of turn my brain off a little more yeah. um and so and, there are resources and, and, and it helps if uh, and it helps if you like build little rituals that uh, let you know that okay the day's done i'm going home mm-hmm. that kind of thing so right um yeah so i i have this uh it might sound silly but it works for me uh when i take off my work badge i'm not in intel mode anymore yeah. Uh, you, you know what I'm saying? So it's like I just like uh, taking it off and leaving it at the at that mm-hmm. bowl by my mm-hmm. kitchen table. Right. It's just that okay, I'm home now. Now it's home stuff. Right. Uh, so it's it's just a way of like checking out, if you will. Yeah. But uh, I'm sure, like in grad school, that's different, right? Because you get you get home, you gotta read mm-hmm. a paper. Yeah. Uh, my first year, my first year, I didn't do that at all. I would bring my laptop home and continue working every mm. time. I think on average, I had four hours of sleep. Um, each day if that it was it was tough because again that giant learning gap there was tough for me to to adjust so I had to put in more effort and time to learn something versus somebody that already had a background in it um, so now in my second year because I'm, I'm only taking one class now to get the master's as I mentioned um, I'm I'm telling I, I tell myself leave my computer in the lab at my desk so I don't feel obligated to do any work when I get home so I've been mm-hmm. doing that and so then I program my brain at seven o'clock when I get home, uh, home roughly, I'll make dinner and I'll just wind down a little bit, whether it be um, putting on my humidifier with eucalyptus oil uh, to turning on some candles, put um, doing like uh, skincare regimes, things like that to add some, some component of self-care in there. Um, but yeah, uh, I think those were like the main things. Oh, uh, actually, nobody really tells you that the programs and more specifically the department that you're in, especially for a PhD program, they are going to be your largest advocates and 
they want you to succeed. It may not feel as you may have an advisor that may not want you to succeed or may feel like mm. uh, they're they're just kind of waiting for you to fail out or things like that. But the department in general is the are the individuals that accepted you into the university. And it's really important to remember they're there for you. So what I mean by that is there are requirements to for a specific program and a degree. You don't know what you don't know in the respect of asking if you could have a, a, a substitute for a certain course that may not be of any relevance to you. So that, that happened to me in particular. There was a course that I, I couldn't take and I didn't want to take. Um, and so I talked to the dean, I talked to the department chair and everything, and they said, absolutely, so long as you get an approval from your advisor that this is a relevant course to your research, that's it. And I said, wow, I wish I would have known this earlier after enduring six weeks of the course and realizing, oh, my gosh, I can't do this. Yeah. And so and, that and, and, and you don't know what you don't know. Right. So mm -hmm. like uh, and that's why, you know, like we have these conversations and I put together this content so we can share and people can find out. And mm -hmm. uh, and also, I think it's powerful that sometimes you just got to ask. Right. You just got to ask. The you worst know, like, answer uh, you'll get is a no. Yeah. Yeah. It's and like, uh, what, um, what has been your experience, like getting uh, accommodation for testing and things like that? Like, so are they like open to that or? Yeah. So um, I had accommodations for testing in undergrad. Um, it was a bit of a tedious process in the respect of for, for instance, with a mental health related um, accommodations that versus, you know, physical disability. You do have to obtain, you know, doctor's notes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then kind of uh, they'll you have to put in the request of what kind of accommodations you're looking for, whether it be ex extended time on exams to, you know, reduce distraction environment, things like that. So it was roughly the same in undergrad as it was in graduate school to get those accommodations. Granted, um, I always have a hard time. In undergrad, I was very uh, nervous, you know, giving the letters of accommodation to uh, faculty members, especially ones that knew me. And I think I talked about that in our last pod in the podcast mm -hmm. I did with you. Um, and so there's a bit of that, you know, oh, people are watching me give a letter or, or rather they see me that I'm not in class when there's an exam going on. But at some point I said, I don't care what they think. No. It's, this is for me. This is for my success. And this is for my journey to get to where I want to be. And so it's very similar in grad school. I mean, now I'm like, okay, got to restart all over again. And not to mention the courses are smaller, so it's pretty obvious if out of 10 people, there's one person missing while taking a test. And at the end of the day, I said, you know what, this is what works for me. And if people are going to judge me based off that, then frankly, those are people that I shouldn't have in my, in my um, radar, journey, in my journey so. for when I'm in my degree. Um, so in general, it's more or less the same. I did want to make one comment, though. Um, so... Most people don't, uh, in terms of the worst answer being mm -hmm. no, when you're applying to graduate schools, most people don't tell you that you get fee waivers for all the applications and up to 50% off a GRE um, fee. The GRE, I think it's $200 or something. Um, there are applications for the GRE, um, whether it be a need-based income um, by income, or if you apply to fellowships or a part of the things like the McNair Scholars, um, the Gates, uh, Gates Millennia, if you apply to the GEM fellowship, they give you those waivers. Um, 
for not only the GRE, but also for applications. So you don't have to pay those $100 per university applications are free. And even if you don't get it through there, just ask the university, what's the worst answer you're going to get? No, right? Um, I had every single university I asked said yes, if I didn't get it through those uh, avenues. So that's one comment I did want to make about asking for asking for things that will help you in your success, whether it be through financial means, whether it be through um, success in academic areas too. And, and thank you for that. And and I think that like as, as we see in, in academia, all these uh, uh, and industry as well, all these efforts of bringing more diverse workforce, more diverse student mm-hmm. bodies, this diverse right. thought. Uh, again, you know, to the university, $100 is nothing. So, I mean, the fact that they're giving you a waiver on that, that's, Absolutely. again, like, like for them, it doesn't cost anything. And for you, mm-hmm. it was a 10-minute email. So it's a uh, Right. Yeah, go for it. And I mean, $100 uh, to them is adding, you know, the, for their statistics, oh, we had 40,000 people apply. So you're one of those 40,000 individuals. And then they could de- uh, either increase their acceptance rates or decrease their success rates based off of you getting that fee waiver and applying. Um, so it's, mm-hmm. it benefits them, also you as well, because $100 definitely. is $100. <laughs> I yeah. can do a lot of no, things with $100. Definitely. Yeah, how many, how many croqueticas can we get with a $100? Oh, man, I mean, the prices are going up for the ones at Isla Canarias in Miami, uh, but they're still so good. They're the best ones. Uh, just a right. PSA for anybody that goes to Miami. Isla Canarias is a restaurant there. The best croquetas ever. I, I will literally argue with anybody that says otherwise. <laughs> gotcha. So let's add Islas Canarias to the show notes. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so you know, so it's the day before Thanksgiving, um, and we have this thing. Um, and again, there's this stereotype of you know you're going to the Thanksgiving table and you see your relatives, tios, tias, and stuff, and they ask you like, "Amijo, what are you up to? What are you up to? Like, uh, oh, you're still in school." Um, So I wanted to take this opportunity uh, to talk about your research and uh, and uh, what you're working on. And uh, and again, like, feel free to get as technical as you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually have my glove ready because I'm going to show awesome. some stuff. Yeah, that's I, feel, awesome. I feel like Michael Jackson right now. <laughs> cool, cool. So uh, I'm going to take the video and I'm going to post it in YouTube as well so people can oh, check cool. it out. Oh, cool. Awesome. Um, awesome. But, uh, but yeah, but imagine we're at the Thanksgiving table and mm-hmm. uh, Mija, so what are you working on? What is this CMC stuff that you do? <laughs> so, so what's a PhD stuff? I've, I've gotten that question from professionals, actually. What, what on earth is a PhD? And, you know, it's... It's important to have that education. So I work on ceramic matrix composites, or CMC for short. For those who don't know what a composite is, a composite is when you combine two or more materials together. Typically, one provides stiffness or strength. So you could think of um, your hair when you uh, pull it in one direction. It's very strong, right? Unless you pull it really hard and it breaks. Then you have another material that acts as a matrix. So what I mean by matrix, it kind of glues everything all together, uh, the fibers itself. Um, So when you combine these two or more materials together, not only do they possess the properties that the materials had by themselves, but then they also have brand new properties together. Mm. Um, So as I mentioned before, particle board is a good example of a composite. Um, the bricks for the pyramids are a good example of composites as well. They use straw and then mud. Um, they lay the straw in different directions to provide the strength, and that's why they're 
still up to this day. Um, so a ceramic matrix composite, you could think of the fibers as being, um, they're made out of ceramics. So I actually have a, well, I don't have a, with me um, like bare ceramic fibers, but I can kind of show it here if the lighting is decent. Um, oh, nice. Dis disregard the hole because that was from us hooking it on. But so this is uh, a cured, uh, just a one layer of a um, weave of ceramic fibers. Um, is that flexible? Can you bend it or? Uh, yeah, it's. Oh, really cool. It's, pretty, it's nice. pretty flexible. As you add more layers, it becomes stiffer. Um, but for instance, um, I'll show you like as well. So these are glass fibers. And you can see that they're woven in different directions. Um, sometimes you could use basically thread and um, they're all in the same direction. So unilateral fibers. And so that's essentially what provides the stiffness there. In terms mm -hmm. of the reinforcement, it'll be some form of resin for regular composites. Um, so I have an example here of a, a cured, this is benzoxazine resin, it's cured. And so it's very hard. Um, and when you mix the two together, you get basically, let me grab this. Uh, you basically get a, a form of composite. Um, it can't really see in the video here, but there is like some reddish coloration in the, mm. where the resin is. And so biggest advantage with composites is for lightweighting applications, uh, non-corrosive, non um, for, for increasing fuel efficiency and all the sort. Um, and so with ceramics in particular, ceramics, uh, they have ceramic fibers and instead of a resin, there's a thing called a slurry. A slurry mm -hmm. is basically, um, there's powdered nanoparticles, ceramic nanoparticles that are embedded with some form of solvent, um, liquid mm -hmm. kind of thing. So imagine you're putting your Kool-Aid powder and water together and putting it in a blender. That's basically you're able to transport the powder into a cup because of the liquid versus it like being slightly moist and then being stuck in the in the blender as you're trying to like scrape it out. So you can think of the slurry as basically helping the particles um, move uh, fluidly um, in order for them to get into the fibers. So, yeah, so it's, a, it's a vehicle to transport the yeah. Got it. The, the particles, because you want the particles to be in your ceramic because they add further strength um, to your material. And so um, you have the dry fibers, as I showed you, and then think of you have that slurry, that liquid. Um, it goes through an impregnation process. I absolutely don't like the word. Um, impregnation. Yeah, oh, my gosh. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know. Some <laughs> bunch of scientists come up with these really wonky words. Um, yeah. So you impregnate the fiber with the um, the liquid, whether it be a resin, whether it be the slurry. Um, and then once it's all together, you can either – it goes through a manufacturing process that um, you're basically heating it up to cure – or harden the slurry, so then you have a, a hardened material like a like a composite, as you see here. Um, so, tip, typical ways of overall curing the part include an autoclave. Uh, let me see if I could kind of show it here. This is our autoclave. Oh my God! Um, I'm honored. You're taking us through your lab. Yeah, yeah. That's I'm really gonna cool. do like the MTV Cribs uh, <laughs> for my lab. <laughs> Por favor. Um, yeah, it's like welcome to MTV Cribs. So this is an example of an autoclave. Oops. Okay, um, you could probably see, let me see if I can do this. Uh, here, this uh, black tube thing is used basically um, when you put the fibers and the resin on a thing called a tool plate, it's basically a piece of aluminum. And mm -hmm. it's in a vacuum bag that it basically sucks out the, vac uh, the air in order for, um, 
for so there's no uh you know like uh contaminations and stuff like that while it's right drained. like uh, foreign objects and stuff that... right 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 and to talk about what an autoclave is it's basically a high pressure high temperature cooker um that will essentially cure the composite and so there's ways of doing that what my lab does we specialize in out of autoclave processing so what i mean by that is basically using non-autoclave methods to cure composites um, and the reason why we don't want to use autoclaves is as you saw it was a pretty small area to fit a part in um, boeing for instance has some of the largest autoclaves because they have to fit full wings and full bodies of planes in there so mm. it's a big uh, space concern you're limited to geometry it's very expensive to run um, so you, boeing has to be running it 24 7 in order for them not to lose money well, justify um, the cost then mm -hmm. yeah yeah so then the question was how do we make parts of the same quality as an autoclave without using an autoclave so that's what my lab does a lot of research in. So we use things like ovens. Uh, I could also show, I think everybody's kind of seeing an oven, but uh, that's an example of an oven there. We have different types of ovens, whether it be you know vacuum ovens and stuff like that. Um, I'm gonna go show real quick the hot press. So whoop, whoop, whoop. Yeah, welcome to my crib. Uh, nice. This is kind of like the day in the life, right? Uh, so this is, a, this is a hot press, as you can kind of see. It looks like a panini press, basically. So this I was going to say, so, so you showed us where you made the turkey, and now you're going to show us where we make uh, the, the yeah. pankwan or the kiwan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this comes down, and it has uh, heat applied to the composite, and um, it'll basically cure it as well. And this is one of our bigger, bigger ovens here. Oops, you know. Van nice. White kind of thing here, nice. um, and so there's also other methods. Too. When you do the press, when you do mm -hmm. the press, is it because you're doing like a, a like two-dimensional, like sheet-like uh, right. composites? Mm -hmm, or, mm -hmm. oh, okay, gotcha. So yeah, like the so, one you showed me was made there, right there. Right, right, right. Um, let me see if I could kind of show this one. So we actually uh, the ovens would be used typically for um, different shape materials. Um, maybe you could kind of see this. Giant full thing. Oh, it's really heavy. Uh, yeah, careful, is, careful, careful, is, careful, careful. Yeah, this is not a flat part. It's actually a tool to use for if you're trying to make something of a, of this uh, geometry. You basically lay the fibers that I talked about that have already mm -hmm. been impregnated resin in, onto that. So then it makes the this is like the negative of it. It'll make the oh, positive. Oh, it's like a mold. Yeah, uh, basically uh, a mold. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so okay. you can make molds from composites for a reason. Um, multiple times because with metals if you make molds they start wearing out over time mm -hmm. and so this is like a good application too there's also this method called a vacuum infusion let me go back to where I was sitting um, where that could be used for multiple geometries as well and let me see if I could grab it real quick uh, it's kind of hard to see but basically as I talked about the tool plate thing it's just a piece of aluminum um, you can see the black thing is a piece of carbon fiber and so this uh, bag thing here, that's the vacuum bag. And you can see it's under vacuum. This little port thing is where it pulls the vacuum. Um, so the, through this, you can use, um, instead of the, it would be dry fibers that are underneath this vacuum bag. And then mm -hmm. you use, it's called vacuum infusion. And as the name says, you use a vacuum to infuse the fibers with resin. So there'll be like an inlet and an outlet port that um, will suck the resin into where the vacuum bag is, and then it'll impregnate the fibers via that um, vacuum. Um, it's like I think. Um, how do you how do you make sure that the particles are spread out uniformly on the on the on that piece that you want to impregnate? Because uh, uh, it depends on the. Um, 
you basically, it, it should, while it's going through the vacuum and um, the vacuum bag, it, it'll start dispersing. However, there are different kind of components you could add to the vacuum bagging that allow it to, you know, spread out versus kind of going into one little area. Um, there's this, I, I wish I had it out, but it's like this kind of spiral tubey thing that the resin will go through. Um, mm -hmm. And basically kind of like instead of it going just flat, straight like that, it'll start mm -hmm. like opening up um, like a, kind of like a squeegee. So then that helps with that. And yeah, 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 because like because uh, I'm, I'm picturing um, and for the people in the audio is just it's essentially uh, imagine like a Ziploc bag mm -hmm. that you are wrapping around uh, this uh, component that you want to mm -hmm. build as a composite. Uh, but I'm thinking of like the frosting on a cake. Right, mm -hmm. that uh, sometimes when you spread it on top, like it gets uneven. Uh -huh. So uh, you know, like since it's so expensive, the process, you know, like uh, that'd be heartbreaking, mm -hmm. right? So if, yeah, like, uh, you get like a, a a layer that has more composite than the other. Yeah, and so that's why they. So what the method you're talking about with the frosting on the cake is actually called wet layup. Um, wet so layup. you know how I said um, with the vacuum infusion, you're using vacuum to disperse the resin it'll spread mm -hmm. uniformly with wet layup though is as the name mentions you have the dry fiber and then you literally pour the resin on top of the fiber and then use like a squeegee and go by hand to spread it all throughout and that will lead to some areas having more than others um, and it'll have that inconsistency so that's why wet layup isn't really done too often in industry mm -hmm. they use manufacturing processes so you could think of like two rollers and the fiber going through the rollers to basically spread um, and make sure there's a distributed even layer as the fibers go through. Um, like, like, let's say there's like a little bath um, here. Actually, let me just draw a picture. Pictures are a lot easier. Pictures um, are a lot easier. Yeah. So, okay. So let's say, let's say the fiber, this is a fiber. It's going into this bath. Then uh -huh. it'll come out this way and then go through these foam rollers. So the bath oh, has the slurry, the resin. I see. And then um, it'll basically go through these rollers to just squeeze out any of the excess resin to make sure it has a distributed uh, even layer all throughout. So those are ways to kind of prevent the, you know, the frosting incident. Um, they do still wet layups um, in industry, but they'll, they'll have methods of making sure quality control and ensuring that they're as not uh, you know, as uniform as possible for the application. But, um, but yeah, so you kind of do the same thing with ceramics. Um, there are different types of ceramics. There are non-oxide and oxide um, ceramics. So oxide ceramics are basically, um, they have oxygen in them. So you could think of like alumina or um, like zirconia or things like that. Non-oxide fibers are typically like carbides, nitrides, so basically don't have oxygen. Um, so the advantages of non-oxide fibers is that they could withstand higher temperatures. Um, but um, as, it, as it goes to a higher temperature, it does uh, have a potential of forming oxidation, and you don't want mm -hmm. oxidation on a part or, you know, a material. Oxide materials, because it has oxygen in them, they don't, they're not prone to oxidation at high temperatures. Um, oxide fiber um, composite CMCs are also, they have longer lifetimes. So that means that they could be used um, multiple times in like multiple hours, let's say in an aerospace application. So like it could last like a thousand, a hundred thousand hours before it leads to a failure and needs to be replaced versus a non-oxide. Um, as well as uh, the oxides, we, they're, 
for the manufacturing process, they need lower temperatures, which lower temperatures equals less cost, less heat and less energy and less electricity that needs to be applied. So it's good for money and a cheaper perspective. And you can also make them faster than non-oxides. So in my lab, what we're working on is uh, the how the manufacturing process of this of the oxide ceramic composites, how the manufacturing process affects the microstructure of the material and how the microstructure affects the overall behavior of the material. So right now there's uh, basically a 20% void content in the material. So I'm gonna draw a picture and kind of give you a perspective of what 20% void content is. Um, so let's see, you basically have a bunch of holes. Um, those mm-hmm. are the voids in the composite. And you don't want holes in a material that should be really strong, right? Because imagine, think of Swiss cheese, where the Swiss cheese fails is where the holes are, right? And then it'll, mm, it'll just start, right. it'll break quickly. However, especially if you're making wings for Boeing, you don't want it to like Yeah, break. you don't want, you don't want any things breaking anytime soon. Um, ceramics are brittle. As you see with ceramic stuff that you're using in the kitchen, stuff like that, the moment you drop it on the floor, it breaks. Um, so that's yeah. why they use the fibers. The fiber adds the stiffness. And um, the difference between ceramic matrix composites and like reinforced poly- carbon fiber or glass fiber reinforced polymers is not just because of the materials being used, but also how they fail. Um, so with glass fiber and carbon fiber composites, they fail first in the fibers and then mm-hmm. in the resin matrix. Ceramics mm-hmm. is the opposite. They fail first in the matrix and then in the fibers. And so you do want a percentage of void content because um, let's say a crack forms. Um, let me draw like a little crack up here. Let's say a crack forms right there. The, mm-hmm. the overall void will basically stop it in its path before versus it going like all the way down here kind of thing. Oh, got it. So, so it's, it's kind of like a, when, when your car, when your car's windshield breaks, mm-hmm. has a crack, uh, what they ask you is like, uh, hey, take a knife and etch it in the end, you know, make mm-hmm. a perpendicular cut. So right. it will stop the, the break, mm-hmm. you know, exactly. while you get replaced and stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. Most people don't know that uh, the glass that's used for cars is actually a composite. Um, they, they embed it with resin. That's why, you know, you see normally uh, glass when it breaks, it shatters into like giant, like jagged edges things. Mm-hmm. But when cars, um, the glass breaks, it, it makes like tiny little pebbles. And the reasons why is because there's polymer embedded in the glass. Most people don't know that. Uh, really fact, cool. it's a composite. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's those are um, ceramic matrix composites in a nutshell. As I meant, uh, as I showed earlier, this is kind of what one. Uh, this is like a single uh, sheet. Normally, um, a composite will probably have up to 12 to 18 plies or sheets of mm-hmm. the, the material. And it honestly just depends on the application and uh, like what kind of loads does it need to be able to withstand and stuff. Um, So like the kind of applications you use ceramic matrix composites are in high temperature. So uh, the oxide uh, composites that CMCs we're working with can withstand up to 1200 degrees C. I don't know how much that is in Fahrenheit, but it's a lot. (laughs) Um, And so where do you want materials to withstand high temperatures? rockets, heat shields for things like the space shuttle, um, the engines used for the plane you're going to see Abuelita in Miami, uh, you know, mm-hmm. tomorrow, um, and in your brakes for your cars. In, uh, in that area where the rotors are, where your tires are, it's gonna, there's a lot of heat 
coming through. And so you want your brakes to withstand high temperatures. That's why most of them are, are ceramic brakes or some form of ceramic carbon fiber brake that can withstand those high temperatures. Um, so that's in general uh, the material and what kind of applications we're doing uh, that are being used. Um, this actually, this material is not uh, not anything new. It's the same thing with 3D printing. 3D printing was discovered in the 80s. Um, this material was discovered around maybe a little bit before that time, but because of cost and people are like, what are we going to use this for? Mm -hmm. They kind of mm -hmm. just stopped, uh, stopped it in its path, and then it never got to see the light of day up until recently, where, as I mentioned before, composites are used for light weighting. Um, and if you find a material that can be produced in uh, large uh, masses and is also be able to use for light weighting and for um, he has really great strength properties and what you're looking for then let's go for it and then by having more research and development in the area you reduce the cost um, carbon fiber when it first came out was an arm and a leg now um, I have it somewhere here but oh yeah now carbon fiber is about $25 a pound um, and you can see here it's kind of um, it's woven in a different way. So it's $25 a pound and glass fiber is a dollar per pound. <laughs> mm -hmm. When they first was discovered, I'm sure it was like 10 times that a price. Um, so that's the importance of going into something and developing the research and development, actually yeah. putting money to make it better. Um, yeah, and, and, it, and it goes into everyday things, right? Like carbon fiber, there's like uh, frames for bikes or like Things like mm -hmm. that, like is sports uh, equipment, like all kinds right, right, of right. things. So, so mm -hmm. it's uh, yeah, yeah. So who knows? Maybe yeah. Who knows? Like exactly. uh, what uh, what kind of applications? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like the main the project that it'll uh, I'll be focusing on predominantly the yeah, predominantly for my PhD is you know looking this material is actually very much monopolized in the industry. Um, the fibers are made by 3M and the overall um, slurry is made by another company. So there's very few people in the market that make this material, but there's also unknown relationships about this material. For instance, like in the processing manuals, they don't know why they put certain temperatures for a certain amount of time. They just kind of put it there because it worked. Um, they don't know what, how the particles size the distribution of the nanoparticles amongst the fibers, how that's being formed, can we control it, why is there that much void content, how much void content do we want, among other yeah. things. Why yeah, are is, there a, is, there a process, is there a process that we can put in place that we can standardize, mm -hmm. that we can optimize? Yeah, uh, exactly. Who knows, maybe you'll come up with uh, your process. It'll be that, that, oh yeah, yeah, we just gotta do a Vargas process on this material and then we can yeah. get it the, out of the door. The Emiliana we... process. Uh, <laughs> yeah, por que no? Por que so, no? That'd be amazing. Exactly, so there's a lot of unknown relationships. The current process, um, there's it's just absolutely expensive. That's why you don't hear too much about them. And if they're used in application, um, you want to reduce those costs. Um, it's very limited efficiency. And as I mentioned before, there is a pause in development because people aren't willing to risk uh, funding or investing into the R&D. Um, so these are areas that we're going to try to prove um, the, you know, the best relationships, how to decrease the cost, how to make it more efficient, and areas that can be looked into further for development into making this material much more common in these kinds of applications. That's amazing. No, mm -hmm. thank you for sharing that. Thank you hopefully, for sharing that. Hopefully, hopefully that. 
Yeah, hopefully that uh, abuelita can understand at the Thanksgiving table that. I know it's a lot, so. Uh, no, but, but that, what I find beautiful about this is that, uh, and again, I'm just speculating here that maybe like, like, you know, like 40 years from now, you'll be the abuelita talking about CMC and composites at the Thanksgiving thing. Oh my gosh, it's bad enough that I start talking. I brought my parents to the lab and gave them a tour and they understood everything. I was so happy because um, it's really hard. This is a lot of advanced stuff that I don't even understand um, sometimes. And I'll have to Google the answer because, like, you know, somebody will ask me a question. I'm like, uh, let me get back to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, let, let me do a, a lit review. Like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, I totally picture your dad looking around the oven. So I'm like, mija, but we can put three on top of this one and we can make more. ¿Por qué no estás haciendo esto? And like, oh, I'm just like, oh, oh, oh we've yeah, never oh, thought about that. <laughs> Oye, le corremos una trifásica and we can connect four of them in parallel and say, 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 say. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. yeah, so being able to explain all this stuff, like uh, I can even show um, here, we actually uh, water jet cut uh, a drone body nice. um, from a carbon fiber composite that we made here. Um, and, you know, what's kind of cool is I actually have, let me see if I can just show this. Um, composites are used in the aerospace industry. This is a Are you carrying a wing? Yeah, it's a piece of the Southwest airline um, part that they give us for demonstrations that we give to people that want training in composites. And maybe you can see it. It's really lightweight. It's not that heavy. Um, gotcha. You can kind of maybe see here, there's like a kind of pattern here. Mm -hmm. That's uh, there's composites in here, and that's why it's so lightweight. Like literally, I could hold it with one hand. Um, that's awesome. And so yeah, composites are used in a lot of places, and it, they're not they're not it's not new technology. Um, and one other thing is that uh, in order to increase the stiffness of, of a composite without adding more layers, is they embed a, it's called a sandwich structure. Um, mm -hmm. And as you could kind of think of an Oreo, there's something in the middle, and then there's two mm -hmm. things on the top and the bottom. Um, it uses a honeycomb structure. So you, you guys have probably seen honeycombs oh, from nice. bees. A lot of things in research are inspired by nature. Um, yeah. This is actually paper that is covered with a coating. And this is uh, put in the middle of carbon fiber sheets or whatever composite sheets to not only increase the strength, but also um, it provides uh, different properties to the um, to the whatever the application may be without adding weights. This is extremely lightweight um, and it overall just increases the strength. And it doesn't have to be just paper too. There's like metal ones, honeycomb mm -hmm. structures, and all the sort. There's also different sizes. It doesn't have to be all the same size. That's so, amazing. That's so amazing. Yeah. Nice. So that's no, a little bit. Thank you so much for the lap tour. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's like okay. now get out. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I feel. I feel. I feel. I feel like. Uh, I feel like I just got like an intro class to material science. I love it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank it's like so a much. condensed in an hour and uh, twenty minutes, roughly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, like, uh, anything else you'd like to add to the, the um, folks on the line and folks that are going to listen to the podcast? Well, I, I can say that besides the ceramic matrix composites, I'm also working on additive manufacturing. Um, that would be an entirely different uh Yeah, you know, so additive manufacturing, uh, in, in layman's terms, uh, 3D printing, right? Yeah, 3D printing. For those who don't know what 3D printing is, it's basically... Um, adding layers in some form of direction of material. So you could kind of think of um, when you're making a cake, right? You have one layer of a cake and you stack it on top of the other and top of the other until you make the full cake. So think of that, 
with uh, there's some form of manufacturing process that's adding the layers um, on top of one another until it reaches a certain height or what kind of part you're trying to print. Um, so I actually have a really funny example of one. I have this uh, little thing that uh, is to hold my glasses. Oh, nice. Uh, let me see. Give me one second. Um, I could show that uh, it could hold glasses in it. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's one of those uh, Galapago Island statues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really cool. So, you, you printed that in your lab? Uh, this one I actually printed um, with a different printer. This is printed with a stereolithography uh, printer, which is basically um, using photopolymer resin. What that means, basically, it's a liquid resin um, that reacts with light. So you could think of when you take photos, um, it basically is a reaction with light. Um, uh, film cameras, there's a reaction with light that exposes onto the film and then it creates a, there's a chemical reaction that produces the image. So the, this type of resin is, um, it reacts with the light and hardens into like the layers that you're looking for. Um, and so what we're doing in my lab is we're using uh, fused deposition modeling or like the, the filament spool printer that has a nozzle and mm -hmm. then it extrudes like a hot glue gun. I basically describe the 3D printer. It's basically a hot glue gun. We've been doing 3D printing a for so long. hot glue gun. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Like a... think, yeah, think about <laughs> yeah, think it. Yeah, it makes sense, right? Because it's, it's 3D printing. It's in layers and layers and layers. Exactly. Like that. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, the hot glue gun is 3D printing. How many uh, times have you decided, oh, let me make like a little cool shape or something with a hot glue gun? That's 3D printing right there. Yeah, um, Printers that are used for printing out your homework assignments and your resume and stuff, that's 3D printing. HP could have been one of the leading innovators in 3D printing had they taken, you know, the opportunity um, at the time when their printing uh, machinery was developed, but they kind of uh, didn't act upon it, and then somebody came in and kind of took took over. Mm -hmm. uh, Stratasys, if I remember correctly, was uh, they ended up pulling out patents before HP did, and then game over. Yeah. But yeah. so it's, so it's, printing. It's, yeah, it's, well, it's, it's one of those things, right? Like. Uh, Blockbuster had the chance to buy Netflix for exactly. $50 million, right? Yeah, yeah. Remember when yeah, Netflix was in the ended. mail? <laughs> it was sent yep. in the mail. It's crazy. And you had to wait, and you had to wait for the DVDs to come true. Exactly. Like, yep. Exactly. Yeah, so, the, the older millennials unite. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so we're 3D printing different structures. You can kind of see here it's like um, there's valleys and crevices and stuff like that. We're 3D printing structures and then spraying metal nanoparticles on this remove it. So think about a cake. So you have, a, I, I love baking. Baking of materials can be just used like any form of explanation. Uh, metallurgy can be used. You could talk about ice cream to talk about phase diagrams, uh, just a little bit of everything. So um, imagine with a cake, you put the fondant on top and then the fondant hardens because it's, uh, it's kind of like melted sugar. Um, so when it hardens, imagine you remove the cake. Then you, all you're left with is the form, the shape of the cake that you had initially. Mm -hmm. So very similar to this, if you spray metal nanoparticles onto this structure it, and then remove the polymer, the, the 3D printed part, you have a part that's made out of metal that's basically the negative of this, which can be used for molds. Uh, awesome. As yeah, what I showed earlier with a composite mold, these are ways to make inexpensive metal molds um, for things such as uh, you can think about your shoe, like the shoe patterns. Um, you could use molds for that. You could use molds for just about anything that's mass produced. And because this is cost effective and lightweight, 
um, you could make multiple designs and iterations of the mold without, you know, without sacrificing in terms of cost or quality, um, because they do deteriorate over time. Uh, how many, uh, how many press, uh, press parts you're making, um, mm-hmm. but then you have the ability to churn out multiple ones at a lot faster rate and a lot less expensive. So that's something I'll be working on a little bit. Um, in in the upcoming future so stay tuned that's awesome well thank you so much emily yes thank you everybody